you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Take Two, me Martinez. Gavin Newsom says California high school sports can play ball starting next Friday, even if the county you're in is still technically in the purple tier. Plus, is a GOP alternative in the works for disillusioned conservatives? Former Republican and current Independent State Assemblyman Chad May shares what he'd need to hear to consider joining up. It's all ahead on Take Two. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. From 89.3 KPCC and KPCC.org, this is Take Two. I'm Amy Martinez. Thanks for being with us. Coming up, an argument for a third, more center political party in the United States. There is no infrastructure and there is no organization in the middle. The people of, of America, the people of California are crying out for that. That's coming up just ahead on the show. We're going to kick things off today, though, with State of Affairs, our weekly peak at politics in the Golden State. Now, in California, coronavirus caseloads are coming down, but the numbers are still high enough to keep many of us in the so-called purple tier. And yet more and more things might be reopening around the state, things such as high school football. By next Friday. Now, today we have with us Marisa Lagos, correspondent for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. She also co-hosts a weekly show and podcast, Political Breakdown. Also with us, Jack Pitney, Roy P. Crocker, professor of politics at Claremont McKenna College. All right, uh, Marisa, let's start with you, because i got to say the news about uh, prep sports uh, surprised me a bit. For those who uh, have not been following today, uh, what is the criteria that counties have to meet before hitting the field and what areas of the state uh, meet that? Yeah, so it looks like as of now, there's some maybe 27 counties that are in um, what the state is now okaying for these sports. This is if there are 14 cases or lower per 100,000 resident or 100,000 residents. Um, and so, you know, the idea a is that they are really expanding this. It's not we're not going to need the sort of low, low community spread um, that previously they had indicated. Um, and we are talking outdoor sports. They are talking about weekly tests testing that would be funded by the state of coaches and players. And there are some modifications there. I mean, this does not apply to indoor sports. So, you know, it's it's huge. This is a big issue. We had a um, really moving story on our air this morning about, you know, the, the murder rate in cities like Oakland and how it may be tied to this lack mm-hmm. of opportunities for kids. So this is a big one and one that I know a lot of, um, you know, parents and, and coaches really pushed hard for. So what's the rationale, Marisa, here? Because, okay, the purple tier is technically seven or more cases per 100,000 residents. 14 is way over that. So clearly still in the purple tier. And originally, sports were going to be okayed in the orange tier. The orange tier is 1 to 3.9 per 100,000. So it seems like it's been all over the place. Yeah, kind of 
I don't know, a little deja vu to like all of what we've seen this <laughs> yeah. past year. I mean, look, I think here's what's happening. And I think, you know, in, in, in defense of health officials and state uh, leaders like Newsom, we learn new evidence about how to do things safely, you know, with this pandemic every day, right? Um, I think there's a couple of things happening. I think one is that they feel like there's been new data that came out that showed that this could be done safely. 49 other states, I think, are doing it. We've also seen case rates and hop- hospitalizations decline very dramatically from the beginning of the year um, when we hit that spike around kind of early January. So I think that that combination has made state leaders a little more confident. Jack Pitney, what about you? Because here's the thing with this. I think people are frustrated and for a lot of different things, for a lot of different reasons. But when we try to stick to what our leaders tell us is the correct thing to do, and then the numbers go out of whack where nothing makes sense. Uh, that's right. And uh, that is part of the dissatisfaction that's fueling the recall that we'll be talking mm. about a little later. Uh, when all of this started, we were told we had to wipe down everything. We brought in groceries so we would sanitize all the banana peels and everything. And then we learned, well, you don't really have to do that. Uh, after a while, people begin to develop a certain degree of distrust and uh, a certain degree of cabin fever, and we see that playing out politically right now. All right, now moving inside, Democrats in the state legislature have come up with a plan to get students back in the classrooms by mid-April. It's called the Safe and Open Schools Plan, but Governor Newsom says it does not move fast enough. Marisa, what's the divide between Newsom and the legislature? I mean, in one word, vaccinations, in <laughs> uh, more than one word, whether they should be required or um, not for all teachers. Newsom is essentially saying that this plan, which does call for vaccinations to be offered to all school and uh, staff, um, doesn't move fast enough that it would only guarantee younger kids get back in classrooms and not until mid-April. Um, it seems like there have been some pretty tense uh, negotiations between lawmakers and the governor. This is pretty unusual for them to come out with something that he hasn't agreed to. This is part of the budget plan. Um, but we also saw today a little bit of softening on the governor's side. I mean, he came out and, and was still opposed to it, but then he also added that he is going to put uh, 10% of the state's doses aside for teachers and staff in the coming weeks. Um, so that might be a little bit of a carrot. But I think that, you know, at the end of the day, you have um, a lot of concern among teachers and teachers unions about whether vaccinations need, you know, they think they should be required. The CDC says they do not need to be. And the governor um, has, you know, basically pushed back to say that this is not necessary uh, statewide. Let's listen to our Governor Newsom talking about schools a few days ago. I want to get our schools reopened. Let me repeat that. We need to get our schools safely reopened for kindergarten to sixth grade. We can do that safely. Jack Pitney, the the governor had a plan to reopen schools earlier this year. Legislators are now pushing ahead with theirs next week. They're going to vote on it next week um, without any hearings, whether the governor wants to or not. Is this how crisis response works out of Sacramento? Just plans popping up all over the place? Well, usually a crisis starts very suddenly and unfolds over a short period of time. Think of an earthquake, a riot, a wildfire. That's where a chief executive is at maximum advantage. Now, this is different. COVID is the crisis that came and never left. It's like the man who came to dinner. Uh, There was initially a rally around the flag effect. Newsom had very high ratings. People supported him. Then the public got more and more dissatisfied. The unions had a chance to weigh in. And the legislatures had plenty of time to work out alternative plans. And that's what we're seeing right now. And that's what the governor has to react to. And at the center of all this are the teachers unions. Uh, Most reps say teachers uh, won't go back until fully vaccinated. So I got to ask, I mean, how much is all of this now, Marisa, in the union's court, so to speak? I mean, it is, but I think you have to like kind of dig in a little deeper here because the union, yes, the CTA represents teachers, but they're not the one at the bargaining table. These are individual bargaining units within every school district. Um, you obviously have different considerations depending on the school. You know, the school my kids go to is the oldest, I think, standing building um, in the district in San Francisco. So, you know, a, a question about airflow there is going to be different than maybe at a brand new building oh, yeah, in another yeah. county. So, yes, the teachers have a lot of way um, the statewide CTA has a lot of political power, um, but it's not as if if they agreed to it, 
tomorrow that suddenly you could wave a wand and everything would reopen. There's a lot of other people and entities involved in these decisions at the local level. You mentioned how uh, the state and and Newsom is setting aside 10% of the vaccine doses uh, for teachers starting on March 1st. The thing is, there was no guidance beyond that. Um, Teachers don't know if they're getting two doses, then go back into the classroom or go back to the classroom and then start getting their doses. Um, Jack, what might this signify in terms of what uh, needs to happen before kids get back in the classroom? Because ultimately, we always say that phrase that it's all about the kids. Yeah. And of course, it's also all about the details. For example, uh, literally just an hour ago, we found out that the, uh, at least in Los Angeles County, the uh, set aside also applies to higher education, that college professors will be able to get vaccines if the vaccines are available, which is another set of questions. So it's really a, uh, a balancing act about the, uh, the safety of teachers and students on the one hand and the intense desire to get back to school. And uh, as uh, was mentioned earlier, there is a real downside to having the schools closed for a long period of time in terms of uh, mental disorder, in terms of uh, learning loss, and especially for students in special education. So it's a difficult balancing act that uh, I'm glad I don't have to make the final call on. Yeah, Marisa, I I was just thinking about what you said about your kids' uh, school building, how it's one of the oldest in in that area that Mm -hmm. uh, that exists. And and you're right, the airflow there. I mean, that's a question that any you know parents that send their kids there would have to answer. I, I mean, man, what what a what a tough choice that is, right? Because kids need to be in school. I realize that. Pediatricians that I've talked to for months say that in terms of being spreaders, that little kids uh, aren't big spreaders of COVID-19. But then, you know, you always got that doubt in the back of your head, right, Marisa? That's like, okay, yeah. the science says this, but I don't know. My eyes tell me a different story. Yeah. And like, what about the school staff who are elderly? You know, are you, they go, gonna, yeah. you know, I mean, there's so many considerations, eh? And I think, you know, ultimately... That's part of the problem, too, is like even if you reopen these schools, not everyone's going to go back. So then how do you handle those kids? Yeah, Jack, uh, as we've been talking for almost the past year, which is stunning to remember that we've been at this uh, for this long, uh, help us take stock of where that balance currently stands between keeping things closed and reopening certain things to get the economy and, and get just society uh, society's wheels spinning again. Well, we've had uh, you know supermarkets, other essential services open, DMV locations open uh, to uh, limited services with appointments. Uh, back in the summer, uh, my son was able to get his driver's license test. Uh, you know, businesses are open but limited to twenty five percent of capacity. But there are certain kinds of businesses that are severely limited. Restaurants uh, have only outside dining. Uh, bars are totally closed. And that's the difficult balance. On the one hand, you understand uh, the argument that bars uh, are uniquely problematic because you have to open your mouths in order to drink. And people, the whole point is for people to get close together. On the other hand, uh, businesses are on the edge of closing. A lot of them have closed. A lot of people are out of jobs. If you're a bartender, you've had to find some kind of other work. Uh, so that's the uh, the real uh, that's the real balancing act, the economic damage and the uh, and the uh, the health and mental damage that results from that economic damage versus the spread of the virus. Bars were supposed to be closed, except for one guy's uh, one block away from my house in Burbank. That would really annoy me when I drive mm-hmm. past it. But that's another story. All right, we're talking to Marisa Lagos, <laughs> correspondent for KQED's uh, California Politics and Government Desk, co-host of the Political Breakdown podcast, and Jack Pitney, Roy P. Crocker, professor of politics at Claremont McKenna College. All right, moving on. Uh, Congress uh, is uh, working on a stimulus package, but California Governor Gavin Newsom just unveiled his own proposed stimulus package. Marisa, give us uh, the details. What's in it? Yeah, so um, uh, the governor and lawmakers are uh, looking to put more money towards small businesses um, to really sort of expand the help that they've been giving directly uh, to a lot of these, uh, you know, sectors that are struggling right now. Um, and and I think that a lot of it is things that are going to be helpful to say childcare, retail, all the, you know, all <laughs> what area isn't struggling. Um, but I think the question really remains like, is it is it going to be enough money? 
Yeah, I know. That's what everyone always wonders when these uh, things start to come up. Is it going to be enough to cover what people need? Um, Jack, I I hate to be a cynic, but I will. Uh, Two weeks ago, uh, Kevin Faulkner announced that he would challenge Gavin Newsom. Um, Either this year or in 2022, uh, Newsom's already facing that recall campaign, too. So how much of the stimulus talk from the governor is related to that, especially on a day where he says high school sports can play? Oh, uh, how much is related to the recall? Absolutely no more than, say, 99.9 percent, you know, tops. Uh, Obviously, the chances of a recall are increasing by the day. I was on Foothill Boulevard a couple hours ago. There was a stand up, uh, people getting signatures for the recall. It looks like it's going to happen. That is uh, a danger, a big danger for Gavin Newsom, not only defeat, but the humiliation uh, of a recall. So that's driving a lot of what he's doing right now. You mentioned the, the, the places to to sign your name if uh, you want to recall Gavin Newsom. I live in Burbank, and there's a there's a little one-block radius where there are three gun shops, and that is uh, where three three of those <laughs> desks are always there. Recall Newsom if you want to stop and, and sign it. Um, Jack, really quick, what are the best sticking points for Republicans to hammer in on uh, if indeed this happens? Well, uh, what we've just been talking about, schools and jobs. Uh, that's what a lot of this boils down to. Uh, they're going to argue that the governor's uh, shutdown orders have been too severe, uh, leading to job loss, leading to education loss. For Newsom, very simple, Trump. Uh, if you don't like what's being said, change the conversation. Don't talk about his record. Don't talk about COVID stewardship. Say, this is a choice between Gavin Newsom and Donald Trump. He could argue that a lot of the money behind the recall is coming from Trump forces, uh, a couple of the potential candidates, John Cox, Rick Grinnell, uh, are Trump people. If he can make it a, uh, a choice between him and Trump, he will win. Well, speaking of Trump, uh, because I, you know, I've been fascinated on state of affairs over the past uh, few months about the ongoing love-hate relationship between Donald Trump and California Congressman Kevin McCarthy. Now, to quickly recap it, Trump has called McCarthy my Kevin during his time in office. Uh, McCarthy uh, tried to shield Trump from blame for inciting the insurrection. But, Marisa, why is a Kevin McCarthy now in Trump's doghouse, and why should he care? <sighs> He is in his the doghouse apparently over this January 6th phone call that allegedly occurred between McCarthy and Trump during that insurrection. Um, this is not something McCarthy has spoken publicly about, but other members, Republican members, that he relayed the information to about the call, in which he essentially said, call off your troops, you know, the, you have power over this mob. And Trump said, well, they must care about the outcome of the election more than you do, essentially. Um, why does it matter, A? I mean, McCarthy has always been pretty good at kind of uh, weaving a a careful line between the various sides of his caucus. I mean, obviously, we've seen folks like Paul Ryan really struggle to deal with the the right wing, the Tea Party wing in his time and and, and the more centrist members. And I think that, you know, with the future of the Republican Party so up in the air, with Trump's future so up in the air, because he yoked himself so closely to the former president, there's real questions about what this could mean. Um, and I do think that even though Trump has spent a lot more time publicly slamming Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader, I think the sort of dynamics of the Republican caucus in the House versus the Senate makes it more likely that McCarthy could be vulnerable um, for a leadership challenge. Although I just feel like there's so much we don't know about how this is going to play out for Republicans over the next few years. Um, and certainly he is really trying to walk a fine line to kind of keep these various factions together and, and not um, anger Trump too much. Yeah. You know, and after we're done here on State of Affairs, I'm going to talk to Chad Mays, California Assembly member who was a Republican and now is an independent. Um, he there, there might be talk of a center-right party emerging and he might be right in the center of it. Jack, I, I realize that the post-Trump presidency era is only a few months old, but how firm does Trump's grip remain on the reins of the GOP? Very, very tight. Uh, now, if you talk privately to a lot of Republican politicians, they will express misgivings about Trump. But in public, they have to respond to the grassroots, to the Republican base. And Republican voters are very strongly in favor of Trump, not only in places like Alabama, but also in places like California. California rank and file voters are actually very strongly Trump, and they have to uh, follow where their base is leading. Jack Pitney, Roy P. Crocker, professor of politics at Claremont McKenna College. Marisa Lagos, correspondent for KQED's California Politics and Government Desk. Also co-hosts a weekly show and podcast called Political Breakdown. Marisa, Jack, have a great weekend. You too. Thank you. 
All right, so is the GOP headed for that post-Trump political makeover? California Assemblyman Chad Mays might have already drawn a roadmap for that possible destination. He used to be a Republican, he's now an independent, but he might be on the ground floor of a center-right third party aiming to resurrect the lost values of the grand old party. Chad Mays is next when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com slash events. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Back now with more Take Two on 89.3 KPCC and streaming on kpcc.org. I'm e. Martinez. After the siege of the U.S. Capitol and the second impeachment attempt against former President Donald Trump, some members of the Republican Party are wondering where do we go from here? Last week, more than 100 dissatisfied Republicans, including former government officials and current lawmakers, held a meeting to discuss that very question. California Assemblymember Chad Mays, representing Yucca Valley, was among them. Now, he's no stranger to these discussions. Mays criticized the Republican Party's direction under Trump. And in 2019, he actually left the GOP and changed his party affiliation to independent. So, Assemblyman Mays, let's start out with that meeting. Uh, we've been seeing reporting that you discussed forming a new center-right offshoot of the Republican Party. What did you take away from those discussions? What I got out of that call is that there is a deep hunger in this country and a deep hunger within leadership saying enough is enough. We've got to start putting our country before the party. So the question then becomes is what does that look like? And if you think of of that, there's got to be a national movement, but there's also got to be a state by state organization. There are 50 states with 50 different rules for ballot access and so forth. And so the big question that everybody asks me, and I don't have an answer to it yet, is, okay, so what's next? How do we get there? And so I think those conversations are going to continue. I was just having a, a conversation with a few folks yesterday about that. And uh, I know we've got a, a, another a, a meeting next week with just a smaller group of us, but we're trying to formulate a plan and something that all Americans can get behind. What values or what ideologies would have to be in this potential center-right party to make you want to join it? Well, that's also up for discussion and debate. This was a group of people who were former Republicans or are Republicans that realized that something needs to be done. About half of the group believed there should be a faction that's started within the Republican Party. And I was part of the group that said, no, there needs to be a faction outside of the Republican Party and there needs to be something new. I believe that any type of organization that's put together needs to have the center right the center and the center left. The center needs to to join together. I'm not so convinced that a center right party alone is going to go anywhere because I think there is a deep hunger even amongst moderate Democrats because they think that the Democratic Party has gone too far to the left. Currently in American politics, there's no incentive or disincentive to go to the middle. All the incentive structure is to go to the right. Or if you're a Democrat, the incentive structure is to go to the left. And what needs to be created is an incentive structure for elected officials to be able to come to the middle, to be able to collaborate, to be able to sit and reason with one another, and to get back to some, some type of civility. So that's what I'm looking for. 
I think, Assemblyman, when anyone is asked to head into something brand new, if they see something familiar, that makes it easier for them. So I'm wondering what core Republican value of the party today is something that could be in this new party that would make it a a familiar thing for someone to hold on to if they would want to join it? At the most fundamental is this belief in a constitutional order and the rule of law, which was something that both the Republican Party and, for that matter, the Democratic Party both agreed on. And we've gotten away from that. Now it's not about a constitutional order and a rule of law. Now it's just pure political power. And it's my side is right and your side is wrong. What we need to get back to is believing in just truth, you know, having some epistemological basis for what it is that we believe. And that begins with a real constitutional order and getting back to this idea that there's this rule of law and not of man. Last time you joined us, you talked about your efforts to change the Republican Party from within. Let's uh, listen to that. I don't believe that the Republican Party is going to be changed within. I tried. I tried as hard as I could. I gave up a tremendous amount of sacrifice trying to do it. At the end of it, what I've realized is that the party is broken and it has to be broken more. And Assemblyman, you went on to encourage Republicans to change their affiliation to independent as you did. Uh, Is that still your message to dissatisfied Republicans, that there's no way to change the party from within, so maybe you're better off leaving? You know, I think that's a really good start. In fact, we've seen that here in in California. In my district, there's been a thousand or more folks that have left the Republican Party over the last few months. In California, somebody told me, and I haven't looked at this myself, but it's some some number north of 30,000 of folks who have left the Republican Party since January 6th. And it's one of those things that delivers a clear message. It delivers a clear message to party leaders in Sacramento and across the country that if you're no longer willing to associate yourself with that party, changing your registration, it sends a clear message that they need to change. We're speaking with California Assemblymember Chad Mays representing Yucca Valley about the future of the Republican Party. If we did wind up seeing an offshoot from the Republican Party, it seems like they might run into that classic third party issue. The the conservative vote would end up maybe being split between pro-Trump and then the center-right parties. Wouldn't that just hurt your cause in the long run, Assemblyman? I mean, from a political strategy perspective, how would you see that playing out? You know, that's been the debate for a long time. I hear that often. In fact, I was just having that debate with one of my Republican colleagues who was also frustrated with the party and said, well, what, what, what's it going to be? It's going to be like a Green Party or the Libertarian Party and you end up getting 2% of the vote and, and that's it. And you end up being a spoiler, right? Because if in some of these states where you have the minor party candidates on the ballot, you'll see they'll be spoilers. Well, the truth is there has not been an effort to come to the middle. There's not been a party effort to build the center. And Gallup just this last week released a poll that said that 62% of Americans believe that there needs to be a strong third party. And it's the highest number they've ever recorded of people who self-identify as independent. It's in the high 40s for those who call themselves independents because they're tired of being a Republican and tired of being a Democrat. So what we have to get to then is how do you organize and how do you build that infrastructure? There is a duopoly in this country. It is the duopoly of, of Republicans and Democrats. Those two parties have the infrastructure. There is no infrastructure and there is no organization in the middle. The people of of America, the people of California are crying out for that. So it's incumbent upon us as leaders to begin to start working towards putting that infrastructure together. On the GOP brand, it reminds me of when the Cleveland Browns football team moved to Baltimore to become the Ravens. They left behind the Browns' name, the logo, and the colors to the fans in Cleveland. And a few years later, they were able to resurrect their beloved Browns with the old branding. If a center-right party were to emerge that, for you, better reflects conservative values, would it have to have a new brand? Is the GOP, is the Republican Party brand too intertwined with Trump's brand at this point? I believe that it is. I believe Trump owns the Republican Party. There was another recent poll that said amongst Republicans, they believe that Trump is the greatest president in American history, even more so than Ronald Reagan. I've said in the past that you can't be a Reagan Republican and be a Trump Republican. Well, today, the Trump Republicans own the Republican Party and they're intertwined. So, A, you are onto something there. Identity matters. Brand matters. 
And that has to be created. There has to be an identity, if you will, that people can begin to rally behind. The problem with even the term independent, it connotes this idea that you're independent of being a Democrat, you're independent of being a Republican, but there is no identity in the middle. There's no identity of what it's for. Um, It's just almost this idea that you're just not one of those two. That's why something has to be created in the middle because it gives something for people to be able to to latch onto, for something for people to be able to believe in, and then something for people to be able to work towards. Now, if you had a hand in shaping the future of the Republican Party or this new center-right party that we've been talking about, should it appear, where would you want to see it in the next four years? What would be progress for you, Assemblyman? Well, I think the progress is just working together. Anytime that you put a group together in a democracy, it's not about one person. You know, it's certainly not about me. It's about those who feel disaffected by the Democratic Party and those who feel disaffected by the Republican Party. And they want a group of elected officials, a group of people to work towards the common good, to work towards common ground. Today, if you look online or you go through Twitter, you'll find 40 or 50 different organizations across the country that are working towards some type of centrism. And they're all working independently of one another. At some point, they all need to come together and start working towards that common goal. So what I would would find as progress is when all of these groups begin to start to formulate and begin to actively work towards the same end. So it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next weeks and months. That's California Assemblymember Chad Mays. Assemblymember, thank you very much. Thanks, A. Thanks for having me. All right, you've heard the phrase defund the police. It's been politicized and taken way out of context, but at least one thing is clear about it. It's a phrase that demands action. What that action is depends on your perspective. Coming up, we're going to hear one perspective that pairs defund the police with partnering up with police. That's next when Take Two continues. Stay with us. Harole is your connection to Los Angeles. Get to know its history. The 1920s were a huge boom time in Los Angeles, and downtown was just exploding. It's politics. It's the biggest local prosecutor's office in the country. And it's food. Korean spices with like a hint of sweetness. And just everything we love about L.A. Subscribe to How to L.A. from L.A. Studios wherever you listen to podcasts. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC and streaming at kpcc.org. Ami Martinez. There are a lot of changes on the way in 2021. For people in Los Angeles, one of the most anticipated changes is a new relationship between L.A.'s law enforcement and communities of color. Well, hopefully. But what would it look like? Since the start of the year, we've been holding a series of conversations with experts and stakeholders, each giving their take on what's ahead. And today, we want to look at the idea of reallocation. Activists want to redirect some of the budget earmarked for law enforcement agencies back into the community. There are some programs that have been in L.A. for years that could be models for what the city spends its money on and that organizers say could help prevent crime before it even happens. And one of those programs is called Second Call. It's a nonprofit in South L.A. that, according to its mission statement, aims to, quote, save lives by reducing violence and assisting in the personal development of high-risk individuals. Skip Townsend is one of its founders, and he's also the executive director. So, Skip, with that mission in mind, your organization offers classes and discussion groups for the community, often to help people change their behavior. Skip, can you give us uh, an example of what people come together to talk about? 
one of the things that really stands out is that there are no emotionally safe place for people of color to come and talk about uh, unresolved and vicarious trauma. So we talk about how to deal with low self-esteem, how to deal with depression. So these are the things that we provide. We provide that emotionally safe place in the community where people can come and, and have the opportunity to not be judged and um, not have a therapist try to prescribe medication or um, diagnose what their condition is called. So to clarify it then, Skip, just so people understand what's happening as you're doing this, it's like a discussion group. People get out, getting on Zoom to kind of discuss these issues, kind of like a, a, like a therapy group would in a way. Yes, indeed. It is definitely therapeutic. The only difference in our group is our group consists of individuals who've done 17, 28, maybe 31 years in prison. And this is their first opportunity to talk about um, how to become healthy. We're not looking to diagnose someone and to see what kind of treatment they need. We just want to give them a place to unwind and to be able to get it off their chest, so to speak. And what kind of things are said in these in these sessions? Well, you know, let me share with a young man who grew up down the street from his mother. He's like, man, why do I have a little brother who lives with my mother every day? However, I had to grow up with my grandparents down the street. So, you know, it's a sense of abandonment. And when I look to see why is he doing the things he's doing, he pretty much said because of how he felt his response to the world was through his hurt and pain of abandonment. What kind of, what kind of things, Skip, was he doing? What was he doing? Well, he was one to fight every day. He would go to school and as soon as someone said something he didn't like, he'd be the first one to fight. And he was a good uh, football player and the coaches at the school would rather see him on the field. And, you know, he would spend most of his time in detention. And and, and it came because of his hurt. He wanted to bottle up his hurt and pain. He wanted to go home and and, and maybe, you know, uh, abuse drugs or, or alcohol when, you know, he had opportunity to be something great. So just giving him the opportunity to, to actually speak about it and, and giving him that platform, I think did a lot for him. It did a lot for me too, because when I think about abandonment, I never thought about that. I never thought about growing up with a grandparent is abandonment. Yeah, and I'm, so, and I'm thinking, Skip, you're not necessarily giving advice for to him, are you? I mean, it, it's like a, a way for him to know that he's not by himself on this, that these feelings can be shared by others. And unless you talk about it, you don't know. Exactly. And another incident I could think about, a young man came to class and, you know, we always start with what's your name and how you feel. When the gentleman said his name, he said the way he felt is he wanted to kill everybody in the house. He wanted oh. to go home and, and hurt people. And so right then and there, so many people were ready to tell him, no, that's wrong. The wrong. Don't do this. And I had to call time out. I said, time out. How many people in this room ever felt that way before themselves? And about seven or eight hands went up. So I looked at him and said, look, so now you know you're not alone. So I don't have advice for you, but just know that that feeling is normal and natural and comes a lot across a lot of people's mind, even though we don't do it. And now the conversation is allowing other people to say how they dealt with the situation. Did they go eat ice cream? Did they listen to music? Did they work out? Did they effectively communicate to their partner and loved ones at home? You know, so just not ever giving advice, but let me tell you what I did when I was yeah. in the same situation you were in. You know, I, I know Second Call also helps get uh, people jobs, uh, put them in leadership positions, teach them basic life skills that uh, maybe they never picked up as a kid. Why is giving them that stability important, Skip? So we want to help people get in careers where they'll get a full medical, dental, vision benefit, where they'll be able to, um, you know, expand up to leadership positions. Yeah. So. Uh, I think it's very important that we help individuals create their own goals, but help support them. Talking to Skip Townsend, founder of the nonprofit community organization Second Call in South L.A. Now, bringing this whole conversation, Skip, back to policing and crime, can you connect the dots for us on this? How is it possible for the work of Second Call to lead to less violence and fewer criminal acts? So imagine, if you will, uh, Metro right now, and they have the trains and the buses and they have police officers and in the county, they have sheriff deputies who patrol these areas. So some people, when they get emotionally charged, they, they look for police and they want the police because that that to them has always meant help. But if we have individuals who are from the community who go through um, some form of training to deal with anger, to deal with emotions, to deal with problem solving and troubleshooting, and we put them in a position to help people, 
they can guide them where they need to go. If they say, hey, someone stole my wallet or this and that. So we, we'll call them ambassadors and have ambassadors there at probably half the price at $60,000 a year, $70,000 a year. So these individuals would be able to not be security guards, but to be able to be the voice of the community, actually helping the community, you know, and having a conversation and have someone, you know, de-escalate. I think that is the, the key to it all. The community member must de-escalate because there is no badge and a gun. There is no authority. There's no way to escalate this into an officer-involved shooting or even an arrest. You know, most community members are not going to call the police for a citizen's arrest. They're going to hope that we can resolve the situation and everybody goes home safely. I think that's the bottom line. Can we all go home safely? Are there any tangible numbers, anything that we can hold on to that helps prove the case that this is a way to prevent crime, to prevent things like, you know, crime from happening in in certain parts of the city? So if you can go back maybe 10 years and think about the decline in violence, I'll start with with Chief Bratton from LAPD and I'll go back to uh, Charlie Beck. One of the things that they implemented was community policing and they went to different parks and into the um, to the projects and four different projects, but they also started interacting with the community. People like myself, the intervention workers, mm-hmm. um, they created summer night lights where individuals like myself and a guy named Shell Dog and Twin, uh, we would be in parks and actually talk to the children. And what we found is it not only brought down the violence and crime in that area, it brought down the violence against police officers. So it made the police officers human beings and not some robot. So it's, it's so much in the air that the community can do to introduce law enforcement and community back together and build a relationship that I don't want to say rebuild, but I'm, we want to build a relationship we've really never had. So when it comes then for activists who are calling for defunding the police, wondering if you agree with that, or because it sounds like there, there is an ability, at least in, in what you're doing, to have some sort of working relationship, even maybe a partnership with police. Yes, I think that would be a better word. So instead of saying defund the police, one of the things I would say is create a partnership with the community and police. And how can we look for alternatives to 911? So we even want the community to stop calling the police when there's a mental challenge or a mentally ill uh, loved one in the house. How can we start calling individuals who have the capacity to de-escalate the situation? Because law enforcement is coming um, with tasers, guns, weapons, and that's not what we need in certain situations. But I would not say to defund the police, but let's reimagine what community policing is like. Will that mean that less money for the police? It, It should mean that. And it's not to be disrespectful to police, but saying, hey, look, you guys' job is much bigger. You guys are investigators. You're detectives. And we don't want those jobs. We want you guys to continue doing that. But we want to take some of the burden off the police department. Skip, if local officials tap more organizations like yours to assist them in their job, they would obviously want some tangible way to determine that their uh, investment is, that there's a return on their investment. So how would you show them that their investments were well spent? I would think that number one is the individuals that come through whatever train station, whatever bus station, whatever community, if they were no longer going to jail and the homicides come down. If we can reduce the homicides and also reduce the amount of arrest, uh, reduce the numbers in crime, I think I think that's the perfect one right there. Skip Townsend, executive director of Second Call, a nonprofit community organization in South L.A. Skip, thanks a lot. Thank you. If L.A. could describe itself in a social media profile page, it would say sunny and 70 all day, every day. That's what it's going to be this weekend. But what to do because, you know, the virus and everything. Well, the cool kids at L.A.S. and Take Two teamed up for a list of fun stuff to do with safety protocols in mind. That list is next when Take Two continues in about 60 seconds. Stay with us. Democracy needs to be heard. This is Michelle Martin from NPR's Morning Edition. It's a fact. Local journalism fuels democracy. When local news thrives, so does civic participation. LAist and NPR are committed to keeping you and your community informed. But we can't do that without your support. Democracy needs you, and so do we. 
So please become a member now at LAist.com slash give. Back now with more Take 2 on 89.3 KPCC. In most places you get your podcast, Sammy Martinez. For almost a year now, Californians have been losing work because of the pandemic. For help, they've turned to the state's unemployment department, but they've often been shut out. Delayed payments, surprise suspensions, and clogged phone lines have left many in severe financial distress. KPCC's David Wagner brings the story of one single mom's fight to crack the system. Asia Vargas is a behavioral therapist. She usually works with kids on the autism spectrum inside their homes. But when COVID struck, going into those homes wasn't safe anymore. I haven't been working with any kiddos since March. So Vargas did what millions of Californians have done during this pandemic. She filed for unemployment with the state's Employment Development Department. But nearly a year later, EDD hasn't sent her a dime. It feels like the Hunger Games. You're just praying to God that somebody listens to you. But out of millions of people, you know, you're just a number. It turns out there was an issue with the start date of her claim. But Vargas says EDD never reached out to tell her that was the problem, let alone how to fix it. For months, she tried calling and messaging the department, but never got through. It's just like, well, let's keep these people waiting, call this number, call that number, knowing that you're just going to be in a circle and end up nowhere. Without money trickling in, Vargas saw her finances unravel. She fell behind on rent for her apartment in Costa Mesa. So far, she's been able to stay, thanks to renter protections passed during the pandemic. But she and her six-year-old son have still been threatened with eviction. You know, it's just kind of like a ticking clock. You're trying to do all that you can to keep a roof over your head. After months without aid from UDD, Vargas took a low-paying job as a delivery driver. She has to pay for childcare so her son can participate in remote kindergarten. She's still seeking retroactive unemployment benefits that could amount to tens of thousands of dollars. Desperate for help, she reached out to her state representative, Assemblywoman Cotty Petrie Norris. Every day we hear from literally thousands of desperate Californians who are in dire straits and not sure how they're going to pay their bills, make their rent, or feed their kids. It's heartbreaking. Petrie Norris says her office has been trying to get EDD to fix Vargas's claim for months. They've made some progress, but it still isn't solved. The bottom line is that EDD is failing California. Lawmakers have proposed a wave of reforms to EDD. Recent months have brought new leadership amid a barrage of reports finding widespread delays for legitimate applicants at the same time the department paid billions to fraudsters. Getting shut out of the system is a common experience across the state, but some communities face more barriers than others. A recent study from the California Policy Lab found that workers in lower-income neighborhoods are much less likely to get benefits than those in wealthier parts of the state. Increasing access to benefits to vulnerable communities is not only good for the individuals in those communities and the community as a whole, but also for the entire state. UCLA economist Till Von Wachter is one of the researchers behind the study. He says the disparity could be driven by language barriers, technological divides, and issues around immigration status. If unemployment benefits had been delivered more equitably, by now the state would have put many more billions of dollars into the hands of struggling workers. California is actually leaving a lot of money on the table that they could be receiving from the federal government that would help stimulate the economy. At a time when California's recovery is shaky at best, EDD has been cutting more people off. The agency suspended 1.4 million claims over the holidays. It has restored some claims after recipients completed steps to verify their identities, but about a million others could still be in danger of disqualification. As for Asia Vargas, she filed paperwork to appeal her claim in November. Recently, she's been told EDD never got it. She's planning to mail in another appeal. You just feel like this is a system that is set up to only help you fail and not to help you. In response to this reporting, EDD officials told us the agency's priority is keeping benefits out of the hands of criminals and getting them to eligible Californians as quickly as possible. 
Covering the economy, I'm David Wagner. All right, finally, let's all take a deep breath. I'll go first. I mean, it's Friday after all. And if your weekend is as clear as the weather forecast, we can help you out. I'm KPCC's Leo Duran at A. Martinez. I'm back, 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 back again after the news has <laughs> finally died down a little, relatively speaking. Uh, that means we can once again share things to do this weekend for people who want to get even farther away from the world to recharge. And luckily, there are some great ideas in SoCal. All right, sweet. What's up first? All right, so it is sunny all week. But, you know, if there's too much sun, a drought is lurking around the corner. You can do your part to help bring back some rain by getting a car wash. You know what I mean. Oh, my God, Leo. (laughs) My car is so dusty right now. Yeah, go get a car wash. It'll rain. It'll all be good. So this weekend, there's this promotional event for the FX series Snowfall. This is a crime drama set in 1980s L.A. This promo event is a tricked-out car wash with lights, music, special effects. Because it's 1980s, it's not like, you know, the disco 1970s car wash. But you can still enjoy this whole thing through the bubble of your own car. (laughs) It's at NCM Car Wash in Hyde Park. You do have to RSVP, though. But here's the best part. It is all free. All right. So what's out there then, uh, Leo, for people like me who love the movies, who love watching film, but miss all the screenings and the celebrities and the Q&As that happen because, as you all know, it is award season. I know. I think we just started getting our screeners in the mail or something like that. Well, here's a great one to go to this weekend, a live panel presented by the African-American Film Critics Association. It happens tomorrow morning at 11. And among the people who are going to appear, it includes former LAist writer and the co-director of the Pixar film Soul, Kemp Powers, who you've interviewed. It also includes multi-award winner Cynthia Erivo, Shaka King, who basically did everything in this new film, Judas and the Black Messiah, and more. And they'll all talk about exploring black identity through their experiences in Hollywood. When you want to go, just RSVP. Otherwise, it is all free, too. All right. Finally, Leo, we're almost a one year into lockdown orders. And normally I'm a lonely kind of dude. I like being alone. Oh, but, I, know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Is there anything I can do if I so happen to miss crowds? I don't. But what is there to, for me to do? <laughs> yeah, I kind of picked this one out just for you. So here's an idea of how to be around a crowd without as many worries about a pandemic. Make sure that crowd is a crowd of critters. Oh, I, yeah, that's right. I hate people, not animals. Yeah. <laughs> Again, I know this very well. So this week, the LA Zoo has reopened to the public. That means you can see elephants, meerkats, snakes, and all the wildlife that'll make you feel like Joe Exotic without the mullet. (laughs) There are no rules, of course, and masks are required for everyone older than two. And when you go, make a timed reservation in advance. And admission starts at $17. Now, there are still a bunch more events to go to online, and you can find out what to do this weekend by heading to our site, laist.com. That's L-A-I-S-T.com. And you can also follow me on Twitter if you want, at Leo Has a Cat, my cat who I don't have to wear a mask around, but she's still cute anyways. Critters are not very judgmental. People are. That's KPCC's <laughs> Leo Duran. Leo, thanks a lot. See you later, eh? All right, we're going to wrap up today's show and the week with another check-in. It's something we've been doing for the past few months, and we want to keep it up, but we need your help. So the question for you, dear Take Two listener, is how are you? How are you feeling? How are you holding up? Whatever it may be, whatever it is, we want to know. Call us, leave your message on our voicemail, 626-583-5281. That's 626 626- 583-5281. Leave your name, where you're from, and how we can reach you, and we will try to get your voice on the radio. That number again is 626-583-5281. 626-583-5281. You can also reach us on Twitter at Take Two. That's at Take Two. I'm there as well at A Martinez LA. That's at A Martinez LA. Good for Twitter and Instagram for your social media convenience. Thanks for listening. Thanks for trusting us with your time. Take Two is back Monday at two. Marketplace is next. <laughs>